welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I'm back. I took a little break over Christmas, mainly because I needed one. 2019 turned out to be a pretty hectic year for me, in mostly a good way. I will look back at 2019 and think, that was good. 2020, on the other hand, can go there already. It's cold, it's miserable, the festive season is over, but there are Easter eggs already in the shops, bizarrely. This is compounded with not much freelance work and often waiting to be paid the fruits of December's labour so that you can pay your tax bill at the end of January. I hope you're all doing okay after surrendering all your funds to HMRC. Another reason why I took a break is that you may be aware I was in the midst of buying a property at the end of last year. Well, I learned a lot in the process, namely that estate agents lie, solicitors are slow, and neighbours can make your life hell if they want to. Long story short, just before the exchange of contracts, we ended up pulling the plug on our purchase because we didn't want to spend the next 30 years of our lives paying off a mortgage to live underneath a deranged person who was acting like a demon to our seller. No doubt we pissed off our seller, and probably her seller too. But the thing to remember is that you can't buy a property to protect the feelings of a complete stranger. It kind of sucks to have to start the search again, but absolutely everybody I've spoken to has said it was the right thing to do. So understandably, podcast has taken a back seat while we've been sorting out a place to live and the glamorous world of putting our possessions into storage. It's alarming to see how much stuff you have when it's all in a storage unit. So we're now largely nomadic. Assistant producer Romeo has gone on subcatical at a friend's place temporarily until we find the correct environment for him. I mean, never mind us, as long as the cat is happy is all that matters. I really miss him though even though he is a bit of a dickhead. On top of all that, I'm waiting for my renewed visa to arrive in the post so that I can legally work in this country. Oh, (laughs) and my car broke down in the middle of nowhere after a gig less than two weeks before we were due to move. More on that later. So yeah, fair to say, January 2020 has completely shat on me this year. Things are looking up. (laughs) Moving on. This episode's guest is Tara Minton. She's a harpist whose versatility is showcased in her ability to play and sing in various styles, as well as songwriting. We chatted just before Christmas 2019 at her flat, where she'd just moved in a few days previously. Have a listen to my conversation with Tara, where we started off talking about how small the harp world is. Well, quite small then. Yeah. Even to today, I'm trying to find a harp in Mexico. <laughs> what? As you do. As you do. I'm playing a chamber music festival out there in February and I need a harp. Mm-hmm. And somebody suggested a Ruth Bennett who plays the harp out there. And so I contacted Ruth Bennett and then a Ruth Bennett who also plays the harp but lives in Nottingham today messaged me saying, hi, got the wrong Ruth Bennett. But she knew the other Ruth Bennett. Because even like the world isn't isn't that big for harpists. Wow. She lives in Texas. I'm the one that lives in Nottingham. Easy mistake to make. <laughs> like, what are the odds that your name is Ruth Bennett and you play the harp, but on other sides of the world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's totally weird. Are there any other Tara Mintons that play the harp? No, I did get contacted on MySpace when that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> By a Tara Minton. Wow, you're showing your vintage. 
<laughs> MySpace. God. Yeah. I never had MySpace. I, I remember back in the day when it was MySpace, Bebo and Facebook. Yes. I never had Bebo. I didn't understand what that was. I didn't understand what it was either. And I really held out on Facebook for ages because MySpace, you could design your own page. At Facebook, it was all standardized. Oh, right. And I was like, I'm an individual. I don't want to be one of the masses. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Here Facebook we are. is running the entire world. On an IKEA world, table. It? <laughs> it's a beautiful IKEA table. Is this brand new from today? It's from three days ago. I've already managed to chip it, which has upset Sam immensely. But, you know, putting together a table is dangerous work. If it makes you feel better, I didn't notice any faults. Brilliant. Thank you. Please mention that to Sam on your way out. Okay. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here in your new flat. Here. Yes, in Greenwich. Yeah, and it feels good to move and have your own space, as you were telling me before. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, windows, beautiful open windows and light to practice. And Oh, you didn't have windows or light before? We did, but the landlord liked to basically do works on all of the flats and ours was in the middle. Uh-huh. And so I was always either upstairs with the harp trying to practice with drilling or coming downstairs with the harp trying to practice with crap everywhere. It was just like, where can I practice today? And also, if Sam wanted to watch the rugby and I wanted to practice, then he didn't get to watch the rugby. And now we can do both. Amazing. Yeah. Not having to watch rugby with headphones on. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. No, I feel your pain with the construction side of things because currently in our flat that we're living in, but moving out of in Hearn Hill, it's quite intense construction going on next door mm. because they're converting next door into four flats. Oh dear. Four flats. So that's why I think it's time to move. Yeah, it's the worst. And people don't understand, you know, they they say, oh, it's residential. Even if it's residential, you should just be able to live in peace and enjoy your home. Mm. But as a musician, that time to practice is paramount because contrary to popular belief we don't roll out of bed knowing how to play symphonies we have to practice them <laughs> oh what i hate is when people say things it must be just so relaxing to do what you do oh. <laughs> i like mofo i play the harp it's like in multitasking on a ninja level uh, that's so true isn't it yes it takes so much work to make it look Easy. Yeah. Well, I guess then you take that as a compliment, don't you? You're like, well, I'm glad I made it look easy for you. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't understand. Uh, they don't understand. Yeah. Hands, feet. And then for you as well, singing at the yes, same time. indeed. So I'm quite interested in that because you're a singer-songwriter mm-hmm. on the harp. You specialize in jazz harp. Yes. So we'll get to jazz harp in, in a minute and how you got to that path. But you're from Australia. As yes. listeners can hear from your accent. I'll try my very best not to do your accent back to you. <laughs> it's okay. The The UK listeners won't be able to tell the difference anyway. <laughs> oh, I've tried to make that really, really clear in all my pr- previous podcast episodes. <laughs> what led you to the UK? How long have you been here for? It'll be nine years in April. I blinked and, and, there, and then nine years went by. Here you are in Greenwich. Here I am in Greenwich. Whereabouts in Australia are you from? Originally? I'm from uh, the Mornington Peninsula. Which is around the bay from Melbourne. Oh, wow. Yeah, my dad lives in Melbourne. Ah, cool. But I don't think I've been to that peninsula. It's beautiful. It's about 45 minutes now drive, whereas it used to be quite a lot further before they put in the nice roads, you know, roads and things. <laughs> the last time I went to Melbourne, I had the pleasure of witnessing the Pink Lake. The what? Oh, have you not seen the Pink Lake? No. Oh, it's all over Instagram. <laughs> Where is the Pink Lake? <clears throat> I think it's called, now this might be wrong, the Westgate Lake 
or something. But it's down on the south side, I think, of Melbourne. And due to algae and the reaction of the light when it hits the water, the lake is bright pink. I've never... I have no idea about this, but oh, really? I'm going in April, so I will oh, check it out. You get to go to the Pink Lake. Well, I'm going to show you a picture right now. Yeah, please do. Oh, where is it? Discoveries from my hometown. Here it is. Oh, wow. Look how pink it is. That doesn't even have a filter on it. That's Barbie pink. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And look how blue the sky is. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Australia. But that's the thing. I mean, quite often I rely on tourism tips from overseas visitors for when I go back to New Zealand. Yeah. Because you can't be a tourist in your own country a lot of the time. No. When we go to New Zealand to visit Sam's family, we always try to take a couple of days to do something. I haven't got to see Tanamahuta yet, and he was top of my list. Sam seems to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the roads in New Zealand. Is there only one road in New Zealand that just takes you everywhere? (laughs) I hate to play up to the stereotype, but I mean, there's more than one road, but there's one very main road. Yeah. State Highway 1. Right. That that would happen. That would be how he did it. Yeah. And then that can get you through a large majority of the country. Yeah. But there are more roads than that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He never seemed to look up. Maybe he was just, you know, studying when I was asleep the night before and then, I don't know. Although, to be fair, when I drive around... New Zealand, and I was there last April. I went to a wedding, actually in the Waikato area. Yeah. Probably near where your husband's from. And I don't think I use GPS at all. It's very different from here, where you rely on it so much to get to gigs, and because the road network here in the UK is so intricate, I would never follow the signs because they could just lie. (laughs) Yes, yes, Um, yes, yes. But it just seems to be simpler. Yeah, I really love it. Mm. Except for Auckland, you know, Auckland's nuts. Auckland's a mess, yeah. Don't drive in Auckland, although you kind of have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing that I really love about London is even Melbourne's pretty much the same. You know, the public transport kind of timetable is a work of fiction, mm-hmm. whereas in the UK you can not drive and it's doable. Yeah. And people complain about it all the time, don't they? They'll be like, <laughs> I'm like it's four minutes until the next train, <laughs> chill out. <laughs> Back home, if we miss that train, it'd be 40 minutes to the next train. I, I mean, I remember when I lived in Sydney, it'd be like, oh, the next train's only coming in 15 minutes. Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Score. And you'd think, do I have time to get a coffee? I don't know. I don't want to miss a train. <laughs> because if I have to wait for my coffee and the train comes, then it will be half an hour. Oh, dear. So do you take public transport in London as a heart player or do you have to drive? I have to drive, okay. though sometimes I take an Edison Lee. Oh, taxi company. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it's cheaper sometimes than congestion trying to find parking. And then, you know, parking's up and you have to run out in the middle of soundcheck and all that nonsense. (laughs) Sorry, I just got a toll at the meter. Yeah, Yeah. I just kind of figured that most harpists I know drive. We all do, yeah. You all drive. But I did see a harp player on the underground once. And that must be quite an anomaly, right? Now... Was it a he or a she? A she. It was at Stockwell Station. You probably know. You can probably and narrow did, it down. Did she? <laughs> did she have an orchestral harp or a, a like a folk harp? Oh, it looked like yours. It was big and it had a big blue padded case. Wow! Because I, when I first got to London, I didn't realize how many different variations of taxing your car there was. I thought you just get an MOT and off you go. But anyway, I was wrong. Oh, like road tax and yeah, all and this the extra. tax and this tax. Yep. Like there's three different. Well, there was. It's kind of 
become streamlined now, but when I first got here, there were three different things. Mm-hmm. And then the police pulled me over <laughs> and they wouldn't let me drive. And so I finished a gig and I hopped on the tube with the, the harp. And when I got to Highgate at the other end, I got told off because it's too big for tube specifications and you're not meant to travel what? on the tube. And it was midnight. And then she said with this smug look on her face, oh, and the escalator's down. And m- the Muswell Hill tube station has like three flights of stairs. It's epic. Oh, okay. And then there's uh, this guy who, I don't know, took umbrage at the way she spoke to me, helped me up the stairs and kept looking over his shoulder like, ha, look, she's got help. Yeah. But yeah, it's a nightmare. Was that you that I saw at Stockwell Station? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it was eight and a half years ago and I, I was mean, looking a little bit stressed and then it oh, might have been. <laughs> that would have been really funny if it was. It was about seven years ago, but I can't, I can't quite remember. <laughs> but I did think, wow, fair play to that person because, I mean, my husband plays the double bass oh. and it's enough of a mission. Mm-hmm. Bringing the bass on its little trolley. Yes. With the stool. Music stand. Yes, yes. Umbrella, statistically speaking, as well. <laughs> yeah. I guess heart players gotta get good at driving. Yeah, though I I don't I don't want to jinx myself, but I seem to have I seem to be in with the parking gods. I'm always parked just around the corner, which is I don't know, some magic superpower I have. I'm touching wood right now. Yes. <laughs> so that you don't get snapped tomorrow or something. Yeah, yeah. But you quite often get paid portage and you get reimbursed for your transport costs, right? Yeah. In theory, yes. That's right. more of a classical thing. Oh, okay. So in jazz, no. Really? Absolutely not. But if it's a private event, then I just add it on to my fee and tell them my fee. Yeah. Send them the invoice and they just pay it. Yes. Yeah. Um, but if it's a jazz gig, I get paid the same as the sax player. Okay. Which is frustrating. Mm. Well, I always thought that there were regulations for those things. But I guess, I mean, it's the same with cello. We are supposed to get portage. And with most reputable ensembles, you will get portage. But then there are some other sneaky little MU agreements where they've agreed not to give cellos portage. Yes. And you just have to put up with that. Yeah. Yeah. If it's, yeah, if it's a a big institution like an orchestra or like a pop star, Mm -hmm. then everything is by the book. Um, But you know what it's like. Mm. Unless you're them, nothing's by the book. (laughs) So going back to your path and how you came from Melbourne, Mm -hmm. um, what led you to London? What made you decide, I'm going to go to London and be a jazz harpist? So I was studying music theatre in Australia. That's my undergrad. Oh, Uh, really? Musical theatre? Yeah, yeah. At a place, at the time it's called Bapa. It's gone through three different various names now. I'm not quite sure what it's called, but it's in Ballarat. You know what? I think, weirdly enough, I think I've heard of that. The Ballarat Academy of Performing Arts. Yes. Graham Foote, who did the string arrangements for my album that you played on. okay. He was in my year. And Josh Pitterman, who is currently the Phantom on the West End, he was my year too. Oh, wow. Quite prolific then. Yeah, Yeah, we had a good year. (laughs) (laughs) She says as an obscure jazz harpist. (laughs) My father is from Nottingham. And I really wanted to move to London, even when I was studying... And it was kind of because the music theatre scene in Australia is pretty small and it was kind of the dream and what people did. If you could move to London, then you absolutely did. But then I finished music theatre and decided actually I wanted to be a harpist and I wanted to be a jazz musician. I auditioned for the VCA on piano, jazz piano. So the Victorian College of Arts. Yeah. yeah. But I 
I did not have my stuff together enough at the time. I was very new to jazz. I, I have a, what do we call it over there? The A AMEB? Oh, yeah. Like, AMEB. Yeah, like- yeah, Diploma in Classical Piano. Okay. Yeah. But I just started getting into improvising and so, yeah, my, my plan was to go to the VCA, but I didn't I didn't get in. So I just started learning privately jazz piano and then writing songs and singing and the harp was only classical. Mm-hmm. Had you always played the harp? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think one day I Googled jazz harp and I came up with two harpists. One was Cindy Horstman, who lives in Texas, I believe, and she is amazing and she has this duo with a bass player called Two-Tone and I loved them. Mm-hmm. And then the other was Jacques Francois, who's the director of Kamak Harps. And I met him and now I, I play Kamak Harps and I'm endorsed by them, which is really great. But yeah, I saw these two playing jazz on the harp and I thought, that's what I want to do. That's amazing. And because there were only two, you probably thought, there's definitely room for more. <laughs> yes. Turns out there is significantly more than two. But yeah, it was those two that really got me on my path. And then it happened very quickly. I met Jacques. He offered to give me a harp. I told him I wanted to move to London and then I did. Wow. It, it, it was all within five weeks of me meeting Jacques and landing in London. Oh, it's quite often the way that happens for Antipodeans, I think. I've, I mean, I've asked this question to so many people. What brought you to London? And quite often they find themselves in London within a couple months. I mean, I was the same as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just think, oh, I'm all of a sudden on the other side of the world. It's really, really cold. But here I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I arrived in April and I was freaking out about the cold. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's still something to get used to, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I haven't. I I have appropriate clothing now, which I did not have when I arrived in 2011. (laughs) Yeah, I think the trick is just to have like a sheer volume of clothes, isn't it? That's what I did when I arrived and I I was like, I've got a jacket. I'll be fine. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) You need all your base layers underneath. Yes, yes. Uniqlo. Yeah, that's right. And I have a uh, like one of those puffy duvet oh. all the way down to the knee type coats. Oh, wow. That's really sorted me out. Yeah, because they're lightweight as well. They are lightweight. Mm. And you just you feel go. like the Michelin man kind of <laughs> <laughs> waddling down the street. I love it. <laughs> That's so true. But how how's everyone back in, in Melbourne for you with the with Australia literally burning right now? Yeah. Well, actually, one of my best friends, uh, April, she had to evacuate her home. It's oh, uh, absolutely tragic, isn't it? Yeah, she's a cellist, actually, okay. like yourself. It's it's really hard. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Does she know the state of her home at the moment? I don't. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's it's just so it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, as much as we can joke about how cold <laughs> London is, things are not going so well on the other side of the world. No, and also, like I I saw this thing the other day about what. The temperature was like the year you were born and how. Oh, yeah. And, and it goes all the way through. And our experience of childhood in Australia doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Like those temperatures, children today are living through climates that are insane. And if things don't stop, then we're going to be like the Middle East with over 50 degrees as a regular over summer. Yeah, as it, the norm. Yeah. And the thing is Australia has... When that happens because uh, the clouds can hold more moisture when it's warm, it doesn't rain and then it monsoons and then it floods. Yeah. And I've literally been in Melbourne where people have been canoeing down Burke Street. Are you serious? Yeah, because it floods, because the ground dries up Yeah. and then 
we finally get all the water because the clouds yeah. give out and then it's flooding and it's and we're, we're literally underwater or on fire a lot of the time yeah oh it's just it's really not ideal is it but I, I just can't imagine canoeing all the way down the CBD of <laughs> of Melbourne yeah I've seen it <laughs> oh dear so you came to London and yes. then how did you find your way into gigging? I mean, you do so much live performance. I yeah. remember the last time I saw you, I actually ran into you at my, at my local pub. Yes. In Hill. <laughs> um, you didn't have your harp. I think it was no, singing, it was just singing, singing gig for you. But you maintain a really busy career of lots of... Lots of performing, lots of gigs. It's Christmas time. You told me just before you're gigging on Christmas Day. Yes. <laughs> but also recording as well. Yeah. How did you get into that sort of scene? Uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. <laughs> I I can't even make coffee, so I, I don't really have a useful skill. <laughs> you saying this is an Antipodean? And, uh, yeah. So my parents are TAB agents. And so, like betting yeah. agents, yeah. And so, to put myself through my undergrad, I got my like betting gaming license certificate. And so, I worked at my parents' shops and you know the Melbourne Cup and all of that stuff for a couple of years. Um, and that was how I that was my like coffee shop job when I was right. a student. Right. Okay. Yeah. Which was amazing back then, but now I don't have. The useful skills that people develop when they're 19, making coffee making. or pulling pints. And so <laughs> I came over to London and nobody was going to hire me to do that because, you know, we can get an 18-year-old who's cheaper and they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Growing up with good coffee everywhere on that side of the yeah, world. I'm good at drinking coffee. I'm not good at making it. <laughs> well, to be fair, I've never worked in a coffee shop. I only worked in retail as my like oh. 18-year-old job. Yeah. But that taught me that taught me to talk to people. Yeah. Yeah. You know which is a useful skill. So yeah. then I imagine you needed money. <laughs> yeah. So I applied. I was living in Ware, um, which is in Hertfordshire. In Ware? <laughs> oh, this is the first time I've heard that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I actually don't know where Ware is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's in Hertfordshire. Okay. That's sort of north of London, right? Yeah, it's the borough n- directly north. Where lots of um, footballers' ex-wives live. Mm-hmm. And my cousin, who is not a footballer's ex-wife, he's uh, just my cousin. But he, him and his family live out there. He's an Aussie and the family are all British. And so I stopped with them for five weeks. I got a job teaching piano, but I never took it because I went to London and, and the way that the hotel kind of scene works in London is that different agents have the contract for different hotels and they put grand pianos in and PA systems in and then they hire musicians. Mm-hmm. That in itself is a huge problem because agents take way too much of a cut and then mm. they don't provide fair wages and all of this nonsense. But, you know, when I first got to London, it was yeah. a lifeline because I could make money playing the piano and so I ended up having to ring this other teaching job and say hey guys I probably don't need to take the job in where because I gig in London and I you know I was never going to stay in my cousin's spare room I was going to let them get on with their lives and move to London and so in doing so you've released an EP Mm -hmm. which I believe you had an amazing cellist on I did it was an album in fact and and she was incredible (laughs) I will I get fan mail for her like at least a couple of times a week. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> so how did you go about making your own album? I write songs and 
It's kind of the deal with Kamek is they brought me on as singing, songwriting harpist. Oh, this is the brand of your harp. Yeah. Right. yeah. So Kamek is the, the great um, French harp company. Okay. Um, my harp in Australia that I bought is a Kamek. So I already loved the harps anyway. And then it, I was just lucky that they also like me. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, it was all fine and well to be playing piano bars and singing and playing Elton John. But, you know, the reason I was here was to be an original artist playing and singing with the harp. So I did have to, like, dedicate a lot of energy and attention to that. Um, so, yeah, I was writing songs about my life and experiences, the same as every singer-songwriter in the history of the world. And then, yeah, it came time, like, you need a product to sell. Yeah. Because it's all well and good saying to people, oh, I'm really good, book me. But they're like, well, prove it. Sometimes they need to see that, don't they? Yeah. And quite often it's nice if you can just be like, look, this is what I've done. Here's a little record. Yeah. And you can listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, I love records. Mm-hmm. Um, when I decided I was staying in London, um, I bought a record player. Ah, the vinyl revival. Yes, yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, my mum had the most incredible record collection when I was growing up. And so I have a real, yeah, just really warm feelings around the whole thing. Yeah. Um, what are some of your jazz influences? Goodness. <laughs> okay. Where to start? <laughs> yeah. I love Miles Davis. I love John Coltrane and McCoy Tyner. That whole vibe, just like Crescent, that album um, is insane. Obviously Bill Evans, because I really love Debussy as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the music that Debussy and Ravel wrote for the harp is just ridiculous. Quite groundbreaking, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And the harp as an impressionist instrument is perfect. Yeah. Um, And a lot of Debussy... Uh, influenced Bill Evans. I love Duke Ellington as well because I love his compositions. Ella Fitzgerald is my favourite jazz singer of all time. Uh, Dorothy Ashby, the great jazz bebop harpist, is amazing. But then more recently, I'm really into uh, John Taylor and Kenny Wheeler, which is what every music college graduate of London says, but I don't care. It's true. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think. doesn't matter. <laughs> but they're, they're incredible. I love uh, their compositions. I think it's it's really important to listen to a wide breadth of music, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I um, give all of my music students listening homework every week. Oh, that's such a good idea. Yeah. Because I, I was invited to Cheltenham two weeks ago mm-hmm. to teach a jazz harp workshop kind of day event and give a recital at the end of the evening. And, you know, my students were oldest 16 but most in the around 10 12 ish and they had no idea they couldn't name their favorite harpist and now we have youtube like we didn't grow up with youtube yeah my grandfather used to borrow i remember he he borrowed katrin finch's the goldberg variations from the uh you know the local library in east richmond and brought it home and burnt it (laughs) and then returned it and this is how i got an education yeah was my grandfather Ripping CDs from the library. <laughs> <laughs> Better be careful who listens to this. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's really fulfilling to illustrate these famous artists to young students, isn't it? Yeah. I imagine when they find something they do like, it really lights that fire in their belly, doesn't it? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I didn't have much hope the other day, if I was honest. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it basically felt like 
everybody was told that they had to leave their phones in their bags. And so they sat there having no idea what to do, too petrified to look me in the eye. And, and <laughs> I don't know how to interact with a person anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the parents were like, go, be educated, be inspired. And yeah. the kids were, were just so... I, I almost felt like reminding them, guys, it's a Sunday and you opted to be here. Yeah. You know, this, this is not compulsory. Why, why do you think they were being so shy? I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe my maybe. rash Australian accent is scary. <laughs> You're just so scary. <laughs> Your accent's not brash at all. <laughs> Thank you. I'm from Melbourne. We speak. Oh, uh, <laughs> we speak English down there. <laughs> so, well, as opposed to some other parts of Australia. Well, the further away from Melbourne you go, um, skipping Adelaide because they almost have an English accent. Right. But the less English it gets, and the more you know, ochre. Oh yeah, more nasal. Although Kath and Kim, they're from Melbourne. Yeah, but they were <laughs> they were hamming it up. <laughs> it was for oh, an international market. But we we all know someone like Kath and Kim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my good friends, uh, Vicky Vic. Vic. Vicky Vic. Um, she's from Corey Mungle. And she speaks like that. She's great. Oh, brilliant. Well, congratulations on your album. And I Thank you. I know it was a few years ago now, and you have another one in the works. Yes, yes. I'm very excited. It's called Please Do Not Ignore the Mermaid. Right. And essentially it's taking mermaid myths to make a greater point about being a woman in the creative industries Mm -hmm. and what that means, especially women of our age, because there isn't a hell of a lot of pop culture references to women in their 30s who aren't mothers sure yeah I think it's it's starting to change yes but either if you're in if you're visible publicly it's because you're young you're in your 20s and Mm. you're being some kind of wild trailblazer yeah or you're Meryl Streep (laughs) yeah yeah and I I still get a lot of people being really surprised by my life Mm -hmm. that I'm 34 and I'm not a mum that I am a successful uh, musician and I can you know make a living mm. playing music and I don't have to like work at the betting shop working anymore. the betting shop anymore exactly <laughs> but like we're common we're yeah. really common um, at least we see a lot of ourselves it's that classic thing where you feel like such a minority but really yeah the, this kind of lifestyle there's a huge majority of us but totally. we just aren't unified in that way. Yeah, and there aren't a lot of stories about us, mm-hmm. um, particularly music. So I wanted to wanted to write about what it is to be us, but also I care a lot about climate change and the environment and have basically been a mermaid all my life. <laughs> in what way? Uh, I'm from the Mornington Peninsula, which is just beach culture and I yeah I I love it I love the ocean I never feel more at home than next to the ocean that's a real thing isn't it like Mm -hmm. I feel I really miss the sea if I haven't seen it for a while I've always lived in places that have a harbour at least yes yes and I think it's something about the sea it's just it evokes a sense of openness and, and freedom yeah that you don't get if you if you lived somewhere landlocked (laughs) yes yeah so i i have always identified with that so essentially i'm taking mermaid myths and using the voice of an imaginary mermaid who is me Mm -hmm. to talk about um 
the climate crisis and to maybe encourage people to think about it, to then act upon it, but also to tell – because mermaid myths essentially boil down to stories of identity and often with women kind of lost or misplaced or stolen identities. And it's really easy to feel – like you have a place within society when you see yourself. Yes, if you see yourself represented yeah. and visible. Yeah. yeah, but I haven't seen a hell of a lot of us where we're not uh, kind of portrayed as like a little bit insane. Yeah, you know what? Have you ever watched um, that Channel 4 show, First Dates? No, I've heard about it. I know someone who was on it. Oh, oh, okay. So there was <laughs> – well, I watched an episode the other day and there was a guy that he, – he called himself a classical musician. Oh, and it just made me really sad and, and made me really cringe because the way he, he portrayed himself was every negative stereotype yeah. you could have of a classical musician. Yeah. He got into the restaurant and he started doing vocal warm-up exercises. Oh, goodness. Started singing. He classified himself as a high tenor. Started singing Ness and Dorma. What? <laughs> Nobody does that. <laughs> this is the thing. Like when I'm playing piano gigs and somebody comes up and says – Oh, I'm a professional singer. Could I sing something? And they always want to sing Summertime. Always. Or if it's not Summertime, it's If I Ain't Got You, Alicia Keys. Those are the only two songs that, quotation marks, professional singers want to sing. And I, yeah, I've never said this, but I'm like, if you were a professional singer, because I'm a professional singer, I would never walk into somebody's gig (laughs) who is not my friend and say, I can do this better. Can I sing? Like, yeah. no, absolutely not. That's not what you do. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Just people seem to – I think people don't understand that being a professional musician is something that everyone works really, really hard to be. It's not yeah. It's not just about being, oh, I'm of that level that I perceive myself to be, so I'm just going to walk in and tell everyone what I think. Yeah. Well, I had someone the other day say, oh, yeah, I have my grade 8 such and such, oh. or, or, or that's just grade 8. And I'm like – just because you have your grade eight doesn't mean that you play at a professional standard. And just because a piece is grade eight, <laughs> I would rather hear a professional pianist or a professional opera singer sing a grade eight piece yeah. than hear a grade eight student sing Level. the grade eight piece. Yeah. Like there is a huge gap. I mean, that's the whole problem is music is so hard to quantify, isn't it? And people yeah. are always seeking to quantify things. Yes. And the thing is, it is entirely possible to get your grade eight having only played 24 pieces in your life. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you do your list A, your list B, your list C from grade one to eight, Ugh. and you just scrape a pass throughout all of those, yes. you could technically pass your grade eight, but not necessarily be of a desirable level. And in this country as well, um, in the ABRSM syllabus, you only have to play three pieces. Mm. Whereas in Australia, and I don't know if it's changed, but when I went through um, my classical piano grades, I had to do four pieces, so Baroque, Classical, Romantic and Modern. Right. And then we had to have at least two extra lists prepared up until grade eight and then they got rid of the extra lists because they assumed you were of a level. But that was to encourage people to musically read widely. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's only so much you can learn from the same pieces. Yeah. You know, just because you've learned a Baroque piece doesn't mean you can play all Baroque pieces. <laughs> That's it. And when, you, when you're um, a professional musician and you get booked to give a recital, 
You don't play your three pieces. <laughs> You've got to at least present an hour's worth of music. Can you imagine if someone asked you, can you play something Baroque? I was like, oh, yes, I've got one of those. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was what they set you up for, the AMEB syllabus, was to have a repertoire that, you know, to think about um, having enough music that you could fill an hour. Yeah. I mean, the grades are just the beginning, aren't they? You get to grade eight, that's just the beginning of your musical journey, really. That's it. It's supposed to just light that spark to, well, you would hope to to explore. Well, I was having this conversation with a bass player, a friend of mine uh, recently, that some attitudes of music grads, not all but some, are that, oh, I've got my master's or I've got my undergrad in in jazz or classical or whatever, and I'm a professional musician now. Oh, You're not if you don't keep practicing. Yeah. And if you don't get some real world experience. Yeah. You know, you turn up to a club or whatever and play something. No one's going to ask what your final recital mark was. That's it. No, (laughs) Like people say, oh, you went to the Guildhall. You went to the Rem. Great. Fantastic. A, nobody asked what your final recital mark was. (laughs) And B, if you sound like crap, they're never going to book you again, regardless of whether you went to the Rem or not. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of Guildhall, um, you did... Go back to do further study recently. Yes, I just finished a Master's of Jazz Performance at the Guildhall. So what made you decide to go back into further study? The real answer (laughs) is that I was in Cardiff. I was booked to give a concert and a workshop at a a harp event. And the head of harp at Trinity College of Music, Gabriella Dololio, and my drummer, Tom Early, and my bassist, Ed Barber, cornered me at breakfast one day and decided that I should do a master's and it would be good for me. They decided for you? Yeah, they all <laughs> they all seemed to be in cahoots. This sounds like an intervention. It kind of was. We're, we're concerned about you. <laughs> We've decided you need to go to the Guildhall and do a jazz master's. Yeah, I think it was in part the like injecting myself into the jazz community because I was very much in the harp community but not in the jazz community. Okay. And then, f- like, filling in some gaps in my jazz harmony knowledge because I had learned jazz entirely the way it used to be learned. And how was that exactly? Like, by listening right. and by playing with people and picking things up. But I think there were gaps, particularly in the foundation of some of my understanding. Okay. So you didn't have so much the formal training in jazz not at all right not at all like I was I was playing to a standard and certainly a standard to get in because most people who you know audition for these great jazz colleges there's huge competition and they've been studying jazz with a teacher through high school and whatever and I was a classical musician who decided to be a jazz musician and kind of muddled through so I got to a level where I could get in and then sorted it out do you have a sense of difference in, in your classical brain and your jazz brain? So this is something I find quite fascinating. As a classically trained musician, I've never done any jazz myself. The yeah. thought of improvising, I just think, what on earth? <laughs> <laughs> like I have to have notes in front of me. Are there times where the two inform each other, jazz brain and classical brain, or do you find you have to sort of jump between the two? To me, it's all one. My classical playing is probably more informed now because I have an understanding of the harmony that's going on. And so a lot of the choices that the composer makes, now I look at the music and I say, ah, I see why why this is happening. 
I understand this cadence and its place within the context of the music because I have a deep understanding of harmony now. So that informs how I phrase things and stuff like that. I imagine seeing something on a page from a composer, you're seeing the result of someone's improvisations and doodlings. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, unless you're doing some kind of Bach counterpoint fugue exercise where you've got to fulfill certain harmonies, it's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. You see, you see the harmonies later as they result from experimenting. Well, yes and no. Or do you always have a game plan in terms of harmony? Harmony doesn't just happen. Hmm. I'd say... Like for me, harmony is a foundation and melody. There are a lot of variations, but there's only so many variations, harmonic variations you can have. For instance, like there are infinite jazz heads. So a head is a melody written over rhythm changes. There's so many different melodies written over the same harmonic form. And it's true of pop music, obviously, one, four, five, <laughs> uh, the blues and and in classical music as well, you, you come, you end up having similar harmonic progressions and very different melodies written over the top. But I think the way that my classical playing has influenced my jazz playing is that, one, I can play my instrument. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but I think for classical musicians, tone is emphasised probably more. Mm, sound. Yes. Quality of sound. Yes, because... In jazz, and I'm not saying it's exclusively one or the other because it's absolutely not, and the best musicians have both. But in jazz, it's often what you're playing, not how. Yeah. And in classical, it's what the what you're playing is defined. So, like, oh, they're playing Bucks, whatever. Yeah. So it's all about the how. Yeah. So I really try to bring that have, having a good sound into mm. my playing, and also the melodies in classical music are the best they're amazing (laughs) and so when I'm improvising rather than just playing all the notes all at once or trying to get as many 251 licks in as possible I think about trying to construct melodies which yeah I'm informed a lot by my classical training for that Mm. do you find in that sense less is more definitely and especially you know there there are times when you need to just engage with bebop and go nuts um but i would never begin a solo like that because it's like somebody bursting through the door and and ranting about what just happened and you're like hi yeah there's no build-up is there no and it's just a bit of an onslaught you know <laughs> you don't you don't you don't want to inflict that on your listener yeah i think just thinking about it on from the listener's point of view you'd want to listen to something that holds your attention yeah and if you give everything away too soon, too quickly. Yeah. It's like telling a story. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it's genre specific because a friend of mine who is a great gypsy jazz guitarist, Felipe de Lasta, he says that he loves gypsy jazz because it's like, what did he say? He said it was like being really excited all the time and wanting to say everything really fast. And that is an energy that people have at times. Mm. And so it's it's a valid response. But, you know, people have many varying emotions. And as a musician... I, my job is to show all of them, not just the narrow. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting to think about melody as being a form of storytelling because there's so many parallels. You're not using words, but you're using phrases as your sentences. There's so much variation that you can have. Sure, we're not using words, but you've got to find a way to tell that story in a way that grabs people. 
Totally. And great storytellers have reoccurring themes or or in-jokes, threads that run through, and we know this through Bach and through Mozart's sonatas and whatever, the the exposition and then the development and yeah. the recapitulation and how you hear the themes that go throughout and they go through various different like morphs, you mm. know, they, they become other things, but you can still recognise the, the initial idea in yeah. that. And the style. And the style, that yeah. certain fingerprint a particular composer has on yes. their piece. Yeah. So you hear it, you listen to a great jazz solo and all of these elements are in a jazz solo, mm. um, the, the great ones. Yeah. If you listen to, you know, a first year solo it might not be it might just be <laughs> managing to to get over a 251 which what's is a, sorry I'm going to ask a really obvious question here but what's a 251 essentially a perfect cadence oh okay 251 oh that makes sense chord yeah. 2 to 5 to 1 yes right gotcha <laughs> Um, yeah, for the non-jazz uh, people playing at home, that's what it is. Okay, or even non-musicians. But I imagine a first-year student still has to find their voice, don't they? Totally. We probably don't remember what it was like learning to speak English, but if you've ever tried to learn to speak another language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the thing, like, I, I find myself, you know, in Indonesian or in French trying to say complex ideas in as few words as possible because my language is limited. Yeah. And it's the same with music. Yeah, exactly. You've got to work what you got. <laughs> yeah, but develop your vocabulary. Um, well, I look forward to hearing these stories that you're going to be telling on your new album. Thank you. Let's move on. So I did tell you that there would be some surprise questions. Oh, yes. This is the wild card question round. Oh, brilliant. Where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next from three topics. Okay. That was quite an energetic response because I get a lot of people who'd be like, oh, I don't like a surprise. <laughs> but I like, I like you were like, okay, <laughs> up for the challenge. Like, how do I win? <laughs> Everyone wins. No one loses at this. <laughs> Okay, so the topics we have, other instruments, mm -hmm. historical dinner party, All right. and favourite gigs. Favourite gigs. So what's your favourite gig that you played in, and what's your favourite gig you ever went to? My favourite gig I ever played in, I have to say, was Primavera Festival with Bjork. Oh my God. It you was insane. I have, yes. That's amazing. Where was that? Uh, in Barcelona. And I was filling in for Katie Hop uh, Katie Hop Katie, <laughs> <laughs> Katie Buckley! I Katie just, Buckley! Oh, I just didn't think that if, if Katie Hopkins... <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, she's been on my mind. If, uh, <laughs> if Katie Hopkins needed a dip and you were their first call, it's like... <laughs> oh, oh, no. I, I, thought, I thought you knew better, Tara. Oh, dear. What a, what a gaff. Uh, Katie Buckley is an American harpist who uh, lives in Reykjavik. Oh, yeah. And she she's Bjork's, I think, first call harpist. Wow. And is, uh, A, a lovely person, and B, a beautiful harpist. So she, I think, was playing Marla something or other with the Reykjavik Phil and couldn't do one of the gigs, um, which ended up being two. And so I flew out to Barcelona to play with Bjork and yeah got, got to they they didn't have a costume that fit me so I ended up wearing Bjork's bodysuit <gasps> <laughs> 
Um, and she was super lovely to me, really warm. Obviously, it was a huge stage. Obviously, we were headlighting and there was a great big full moon over the bay. And I walk out first dressed in this crazy outfit with a mask and everything. And everybody thought that I was Bjork. Oh, wow. She's um, got the bodysuit. Yeah. <laughs> well, just because, you know, you can't tell who, who anybody is because mm. we're all in these crazy masks. And it was harp, percussion, DJ and seven flautists. Oh, wow. It was such a really interesting, beautiful lineup. Yeah. And then Bjork being Bjork, who's well, she's just a goddess. so versatile. <laughs> yeah, she's inc- she's incredible, honestly. Like working with her, she's incredible. Filling in for Katie. But I walked out on stage and it was a wall of people. Like the biggest congregation I have ever seen in my life. And I thought maybe I would be nervous, but because it was so huge, it didn't feel real. Right. And I sat down at the harp and, you know, you've got idiots with the click and people giving directions to you and all of this stuff. And the floor, the subwoofers, the bass is so heavy that it makes the floor vibrate. Yeah. So I had to hold onto the harp just to, (laughs) so that it wouldn't like bounce. Earthquake. Yeah. But it was insane. And Sam, um, my husband, he got to come with me. It was so beautiful to share that with him. And then um, Nick Cave, who is one of my favourite artists of all time, was playing directly after us. So we got to watch the Nick Cave gig from the VIP area and then I met him afterwards and I was partying with all these amazing people from all over the world. It was just the greatest night of my life. That just sounds like an absolute dream. It was so, so, so cool. Wow. What was the best Bjork song you got to play? So off her new album, um, Utopia, there's this gorgeous piece called Blissing Me. I think it's about her friendship with James Merry, who is the designer of her masks. He's British, but he lives out in Iceland and he's just an incredible talent. I think it's about her relationship with him, but I can't entirely be sure. They're really good friends, but it's about being a music nerd and swapping... Swap, like you know, you know how we do. Like yeah. we swap. Oh, I listened to this the other day, and blah blah blah. But it starts with harp, mm-hmm. so it, it's basically a duet between harp and Bjork with kind of flutes interjected. Oh my gosh, it's so Amazing. beautiful. I thought I, I find her music so. There's there's something about Bjork's music. She's got a great sense of spaciousness, mm. but then also when you're listening to her, you feel like she's singing just to you. Yeah, like never mind that she's selling out festivals. In, yeah, in Barcelona. yeah, yeah. You can go to one of, I've never seen her live, but you can listen to one of her recordings and feel like, well, you're the only person she's singing to. Yeah. There's no boundaries to what she, she writes about like her life, but she's specific. You know, I've taught a little bit of songwriting over the years and a common misconception that young writers make is that they want to not be specific because they want to appeal to the widest range of people. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really work that way because you end up just saying nothing and Bjork is so specific and at times you're like what are you even talking about but you feel it still yeah you know, I, yeah I adore her amazing I that's incredible that you got to have that experience it was such a, I can't believe I got the phone call but I did <laughs> I'll take it <laughs> I'll take it <laughs> and what was the best gig you got to go and watch so other than Nick Cave <laughs> following the best gig you played at yeah <laughs> It's down to two. I got to see Lisa Fisher at the Barbican and she, for years and years and years, was the Rolling Stones' backup singer, Mm -hmm. Sting's backup singer, Lisa Vandross's backup singer. 
in my opinion, she has the greatest voice of of anybody living today, and she's an incredible, incredible uh, jazz vocalist. Well, just in, and an incredible technician. Her her ability is beyond belief, and her ability to connect, her generousness as as a performer. Uh, it was a spiritual experience seeing her perform and sing with such humility. And her musical director is a genius. Everybody in the band sang. And so many of the harmonic movements and cool, interesting things that happened were vocally led. A lot of people assume that singers are just the dumb singer at the front and aren't they don't really class them as musicians. Mm-hmm. And as an instrumentalist who is a singer, I really struggle with that frustrates me. Yeah. So it was singer-led. Yeah. But she is a musician. Yeah. She knows exactly what she's doing and what's going on underneath her. And it was just like watching a master. You can tell when people have that effect on an ensemble. Yeah. You? You're like, okay, you're, you're not defined by the instrument or your voice or whatever. You're defined by the fact that you are a musician. Yeah. You she's this, music. Like, yeah. <laughs> she's you have amazing. this vision and you're just going to make it happen. Somehow. Yeah. 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 She was amazing. Um, and then when I was, I think, in first year or second year music theatre, my dad took me to see Mandy Patinkin. Oh. <laughs> I just, wasn't he the guy from The Princess Bride? Yes. I'm Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to, to die. die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He ran out on stage after the third encore. I did that. Really? Yes. He's like, hello. <laughs> It was amazing. Um, but we bought like really expensive tickets. My dad went all out and it was like a father and daughter date. And it, it was Mandy Patinkin sings Sondheim. It was wow. at Hamer Hall and it was just a piano and Mandy Patinkin. He had a pianist and him and he sang Sondheim. And it was like we were talking about Bjork before. We, I was the only person there and he sang to me. Wow. I'm not actually very familiar with Mandy Patinkin's other work apart from Princess Bride, but I yeah, I feel like I should go and seek that he, out now. He was on a TV show back in the day called Chicago Hope, and he sang sometimes oh, yeah. on that. But he's yeah, I mean he's Jewish and he has a deep connection to the New York music theatre community, and I, I mean he's amazing, an amazing communicator. Which is, I think, the thing that unifies that concert and the Lisa Fisher concert is yeah. the, the communicating. Yeah, you want to connect with the people in the audience. Yeah, and that that's what I love about music and why I don't really I kind of don't like the definition between classical and jazz or I'm like if it's good music it's good music and if it's a good communicator, a good practitioner then it, I'm going to love it. Yeah. And I think the problem is with a lot of people who may feel intimidated by one or the other um, when they're listening to it is they feel like there are these restraints mm. upon listening, are these ideals that you must you must say this when you listen to this kind of music yeah. or whatever. But we need really need to get get it into people's brains that there's, there's no limits, you know. Yeah, you feel what you feel whenever you listen to anything. Yeah, and there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, I went to a jazz gig in a church recently, and the the demographic of the people that were there was really interesting. And um, I went as a jazz musician to a jazz gig, um, but lots of people went to listen to some nice music on a Sunday afternoon at the church. <laughs> and after solos, I was clapping and whooping and, oh, yeah. you know, getting yeah. into it. And the looks that I was getting, <laughs> people were turning around in the pews. Like, what is she doing? How dare you clap? Interrupting the music. Oh, I mean, but the clapping between movements in, in classical music is really confusing because there are orchestras that are allowing that kind of thing now and, and no one knows what to do. 
And then yeah. what's worse is, is you get the awkward smattering. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just doesn't sound genuine anymore. You know, I went to my first proms this year. Oh, did you? Yes. Nice. I was very excited. The whole lighting up, standing. Oh, uh, yeah. The proming. Yeah. Oh, I loved yep. it. The, the Britishness of it all. Yes. What did you see? Oh, my gosh. I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I went to any proms this year. Isn't that terrible? Well, it's at a busy time of year. I saw the Vienna Phil. I can't oh, remember what they played. Brilliant. But Annaline, the harpist for the Vienna Phil, is also with Kamek. And she's amazing. I mean, I think I'd like to say I went to see her and I would go and see her, but I think I went because that was the day I was free. Yeah. Well, that's often the way it happens with the proms. Yeah. You can't always plan ahead unless you're a diehard fan of, of whatever. Well, yeah, but yeah. as a gigging musician, it's... You can't plan. You can't plan. <laughs> as, as soon as you buy tickets to a concert or book a holiday, that gar- you're guaranteed yeah. to get some work coming. I don't work on my birthday. Oh, okay. So yeah. that's the, um, you know, the joy of being freelance. Yeah. Is working for myself. I don't think I've worked on my birthday for several years now, actually. I did once, yeah. and it was with the Diversity Choir, because they asked me nicely. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's supposed to ask nicely, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, and it was a, a great uh, reason. But I had an agent have a go at me recently because he offered me a gig, and I said, "Oh no, I uh, it's my birthday." And he said, "So, <laughs> like, listen, oh, unless the fee is this much, or it's Beyonce calling, <laughs> then don't bother me on the thirteenth of December." Yeah, I feel like I could keep talking to you for ages. It's been an absolute pleasure. Before we go, could you tell us where people can follow you? Instagram, I think my name is Tara underscore Minton. No, that's on Twitter, Tara underscore Minton. On Instagram, it's just Tara Minton. Brilliant. Easy to remember. Facebook, it's Tara Minton or Tara Minton Music. But it's all just Tara Minton, M-I-N-T-O-N, variations on a theme of that. (laughs) I was just going to say that. (laughs) True musicians, obviously. Yeah. But Um, all my gigs and all of that nonsense, um, a blog that I – attend to as diligently as I attend to my diary, which is abysmal. (laughs) (laughs) But I do try every new year. I'm like, I'm going to write a blog. Uh, So there'll be one post a year. You can check it out. It'll be great. Oh, great. Um, I look forward to it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, videos of like fun gigs and and, uh, when I'm gigging and playing and stuff like that is all on the website, taraminton.com.au because Australia, oi, oi, oi. You know what? I've got a .com.au email address. Do you? I do, yeah. But why? I, I don't really know why. How did that happen? I, it just—it was years ago in New Zealand. I got a yahoo.com.au. AU? For some reason. Not, not NZ. NZ? No, I don't know why. And I still have it to this day. So every time I'm giving my email address and I get to the .com and I have to make sure that I don't oh. cadence my voice to indicate that there's more coming. <laughs> well, Tara Minton, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Davina. Cheers. That was my conversation with the wonderful Tara Minton. This episode's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes from me because I'm being selfish today. But you'll need to hear this story because it is the absolute worst. A few weeks ago, I performed in a concert down in Bournemouth, the lovely seaside town about two and a half hours southwest of London. I was feeling super smug because the concert finished at nine, really early. I'll be home before midnight, I thought. How very wrong I was. It all happened very quickly. 
I was only about half an hour out of Bournemouth on the M27 motorway when I heard a vroom sound. At first I thought I'd driven over something, but then noticed the car rapidly decelerating. Curse words were flashing through my brain. I mashed the hazard lights on with the palm of my hand and gradually made my way to the side of the road. I opened up the bonnet of the car because that's what people in movies do when their car breaks down, but then stared blankly at the innards of the car. Because what do I know? I am basically illiterate in terms of car knowledge. When do you learn these things? Unless you're interested in that kind of thing, never. It's like taxes or conveyancing law. You don't learn about it until you're in the middle of it. Anyway, I've never been more grateful for breakdown cover in my life. I called them and told them where I was, but I had to wait an hour for them to meet me. They say you're supposed to wait outside the car, but it was about two degrees outside, so I thought, screw that, and huddled up into a ball in the passenger seat. I called my husband, but then I got paranoid about running out of phone battery. So I mostly just curled up, conserving energy like a cat, and stared into space. When the breakdown service finally arrived, the man informed me that the cam belt had gone. This is a word I am vaguely aware of and understand is crucial to the functioning of a car. <laughs> I later found out that it holds the two bits of engine together, and without it, the engine essentially just kind of pummels itself to death. So they were going to have to tow me home. Their promise is to tow you to any location in the UK, but the problem is each individual driver has a limit of 60 miles, which was nowhere near my home. So he drove me to fleet services and instructed the next tow truck driver to come. At this point, it was well after midnight and I had to wait another two hours for the truck to arrive. Thankfully, the services was 24 hours, so I had a delightful meal, I guess you could say, of mint tea and some fries. I then read about 15 magazines in WH Smith. The second tow truck finally arrived and I arrived home at 3.20am. What started out being a day where I set off expecting just to play some nice music and see some friends turned out to be one lengthy transport disaster. More than six hours after my concert finished, I crawled into bed and tried to forget that the evening had happened. I mean, I know it could have been a lot worse. Imagine if I didn't have breakdown cover or hadn't stopped on a main road. If I'd been dumped at a crummy services that didn't have delicious french fries. Or if I had passengers in the car and was responsible for getting them back to London. I've got to count my blessings. But it still sucks. If you have an experience that Music College didn't prepare you for, then tell me. We can commiserate together. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com for your chance to be featured on the podcast. That's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Massive thanks to Tara Minton for being my guest this episode. And finally, thank you for listening. Cheers to all those who've gotten in touch with me over the Christmas and New Year break and apologies if I haven't gone back to you yet. I promise I will at some point, maybe. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to everyone who has already and spread the word. Chat to you soon. Bye. Bye.